1: The year is 2022, and the news media most of us grew up with is all but dead. Advancements in technology have forever altered the nature of news and political news coverage. Network, cable, and online news organizations value speed over accuracy and cater their reporting to specific ideological and demographic groups. They lean hard into storylines that stimulate their base and avoid reporting stories that run counter to their preferred narratives. The result is an ever-expanding partisan divide within an inadequately informed populace. A cultural civil war is brewing. Two rogue journalistic purists stand opposed and have dedicated themselves to protecting journalistic integrity and the relentless pursuit of truth. Their names are Liz Habib and John Ziegler, and this is their podcast, The Death of Journalism.
2: Welcome to episode number 35 of the Death of Journalism podcast. My name is John Ziegler. I am your host. And in this episode, we'll get to the latest on the Don Lemon and James O'Keefe sagas. Lots of other things also to get to. But first, a major mainstream media security breach on the COVID cover-up on multiple fronts. Remarkable stuff. And I want to start with a subject I really should have spoken about in episode number 34. But unfortunately, somehow it slipped through the cracks in our uh, production format here on The Death of Journalism. But that's okay. We do two episodes a week, so it gives me plenty of opportunity to catch catch up on things that I should have gotten to earlier. I'm referring to the latest from Bill Maher. And one of the more remarkable elements of the media reaction to the entire COVID panic was that one of the very few people who have been willing to stand up theoretically against self interest for the truth? Was Bill Maher. Bill Maher, who has been very liberal throughout his career, uh, increasingly so, actually, until the last couple of years when, you know, COVID insanity and the wokeness mania just uh, completely broke the left. And Bill Maher was one of the very few leftist within the club that was willing to say, wait a minute, what the hell is going on here? And with regard to COVID, uh, Bill Maher has been by far among the best liberals in the news media, not that he had much competition in calling out the BS of the COVIDiots. And he did so again in his most recent edition of his HBO show. And he did so directly to a member of the liberal media elite Ari Melber, who hosts a show on MSNBC, and Mar was talking about something that we did discuss in the last episode of the Death of Journalism, which was the new study indicating that, lo and behold, shockingly, just as the so-called conspiracy theorists were telling you from the beginning, it turns out that natural immunity is at least as good, if not better, than any protection that the vaccines could provide with regard to the COVID virus. And Marr did this in a very pointed way, uh, pointing out one, the, the reality of the study, and two, wondering how much media attention that was going to get because it didn't jive with the agenda or the narrative that the media is deeply, deeply invested in with regards specifically to the vaccines. And then he took it a step further and he attacked Melbourne almost directly, and certainly Melbourne's network, MSNBC. For their role in how it is that Democrats, the people who actually consume liberal media, obviously more than conservatives do, how it is that Democrats had such a dramatically inaccurate perception of how dangerous COVID was and still is to this day. And here's what that sounded like on Bill Maher's HBO show late last week.
3: Because I saw in the paper today... Kind of a big story, I think. I wonder how much it's going to get covered in the liberal media. Because it's about how natural immunity... They did a giant study. 65 countries, or maybe something like 65 countries. Many, many different studies. They looked at them all. Natural immunity. As good or better than the vaccine. Something I've been saying since the beginning. And I get called an anti-vaxxer. That's not an anti-vaxxer. This is the kind of thing... You know, my problem with the media from both sides is not that you you guys lie. It's that you tell me your side of the story that you want me to know. You don't tell me the whole story. I'd be curious as to how much play this story gets, because I, I, I remember reading that they did a study of Republicans versus Democrats. The question was, what percentage This is like a year and a half ago? What percentage of people who get COVID require hospitalization? The answer is less than 1%. Almost half of Democrats thought it was over 50%. They listen to your network. Where do they get that kind of information?
2: That was to to you. That That
3: was clear. That's bad information they have in their head, and it's from one side.
2: Now, that shouldn't be extraordinary, but it is, even in February of 2023. And I very much appreciated it partially because it dovetails with something I talked a lot about in the last episode of the death of journalism, which is, okay, Fox News Channel is totally wrong, completely wrong, for not condemning election fraud lies that they know to be lies, specifically with regard to the the Dominion ballot counting machines and the lawsuit that exposed the text messages between Fox News hosts in private saying, we know this is all BS, but we can't say that to our audience because it'll piss off the Trump supporters. That's a paraphrase of what was going on there. Well, COVID is exactly the same dynamic in the left-wing media. Masks and vaccines in different ways, but obviously in similar fashion, and other elements of the COVID response, like school closings, those are all things that you cannot, you cannot tell the truth about, especially in the left- wing media because you will offend your core audience and that's the essence of this whole problem is that there are certain truths increasingly that have to be ignored and it's easier than ever to ignore these truths because as I say constantly it might be the most important <laughs> cliche that I've or adage that I've ever come up with, which is it's not what gets reported that matters. It's what gets repeated, and in this highly fragmented era, where there's all sorts of different formats, you know, internet, Twitter, television, you know, what, uh, streaming, wh- whatever. It's, it's always going to be easy for a news outlet to say, "Well, we did report that." Sure, yeah, we put it at the bottom of our uh, of our web page, or we tweeted it at once. I mean, it, it's it's incredibly easy. Have plausible deniabilities, yeah. We we reported on the fact that that study indicated that immunity is just as strong or better than the vaccines, but we're not going to pound it into the heads of our audience because that's going to be too dangerous, that's going to piss them off, that will offend them, and then they might leave us for someone else. These are our consumers, these this is a business, and so if they don't like our product, they're going to go find a product they like better someplace else, which gets to my other metaphor that I use for the modern media, which is therapy. If the therapist doesn't tell you what you want to hear, you're going to probably go find another therapist. And in this fragmented era, there's plenty of other therapists to find. It's very easy to do so. They're all over the place. And so this is the problem. The inmates are running the asylum. And Bill Mark called out Melbourne right to his face, Melbourne, of course, didn't have a good response, as you heard there. It was basically shock that this was even a discussion that they were having. And it's incredibly important because, as Mar indicated, there has not been massive media coverage of this study involving natural immunity, which there should be. I mean, everybody who mocked those who said natural immunity was as strong or better than the vaccine's. Should be humiliated publicly. There should be accountability. They should lose any credibility that they had. People should lose jobs over this. I mean, this was the basis, in a large part, of people losing their jobs over vaccine mandates. People who had actually had COVID already and had natural immunity was, were losing jobs because they refused to take a vaccine that didn't even stop transmission. I mean, you just can't make up this level of insanity. And and for it to come from Bill Maher, I just think is so emblematic of what the problem is. It's kind of the ultimate, the exception that proves the rule. Because here's a guy who's not really even a journalist. He's a comedian, opinion guy, who's a leftist, and and who even he has been willing to to stand up and go, wait a minute, guys, this is nuts. We've lost our minds here. And it's my understanding from a very good source from inside HBO, that HBO, shockingly, as leftist as HBO is, is backing Bill Maher in this effort. And there, it appears as if his, his after show is going to be put on CNN on Friday nights. By the way, CNN and HBO are owned by the same company, Discovery Now. But the, you know, I find that very interesting. Now, apparently, it's because the audience is responded very well to what bill maher has done on hbo which is also mildly surprising to me because at first even his own studio audience was kind of tepid and didn't know what to do i mean they were so they were so the show is done in los angeles i mean so you're gonna find mostly liberals that go to the show anyway and so los angeles liberals at first i think were very hesitant to respond with applause to something that they weren't hearing anywhere else certainly not in the local media with regard to the the contrarian view of how we were handling COVID. So there's been one shining light of good news within the liberal media, and that's Bill Maher at HBO. And I, 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 I regretted not coming up with that clip in the previous episode, but it actually works very well for this episode. One, because it gives me a second chance to talk about this incredibly important topic, but because it also happens to fit perfectly with what happened just yesterday, as I taped this on Wednesday morning, just yesterday evening, in the New York Times, holy mainstream news media security breach. Alert, alert, alert. We have a major mainstream news media security breach on the COVID cover-up, specifically with regard to masks. Now, for almost three years, I have been one of those who have been screaming from every mountaintop I can get on, that masks clearly, obviously do not work on an airborne virus. Everyone has always known this, and the data that we now have, unprecedented real-world data all over the world for years now, backs that conclusion up in every possible way. And a couple weeks ago, of course, there was a study of studies from the Cochrane Review, highly prestigious, an extremely well uh, documented review of all the studies on masks, and they concluded that guess what? Yeah, um, those conspiracy theorists, those people that were uh, you know not willing to get along with the rest of us and were such a pain in the ass, they didn't say this, of course, but this was the conclusion. Yeah, those mask mandates didn't do anything, and uh, it's very clear that they did nothing. And uh, yeah, we should probably um, you know not do this again. That was the basic conclusion of the Cochrane Review study on masks, and that has been largely ignored by the mainstream news media. Again, it's very, very easy in this era to make one very quick report on it, acknowledge that it existed, give yourself plausible deniability, and then immediately move on, because you're dealing with a situation where the other side of the story, the pro-mask side of the story, had it beaten into our heads in every possible way, both via the media and by society and by our neighbors and in our schools and at our sporting events, that masks are absolutely mandatory and they clearly obviously work. And it has been beaten into our heads for over two years. So The idea that, you know, one quick report somehow, oh, yeah, by the way, there's a study saying that uh, masks don't work. Let's move on real quickly. Nothing to see here is going to have any impact is just ridiculous. It's not the way the world works. So I was mildly stunned when last night uh, I saw that the New York Times had published an opinion piece, an opinion piece, which is so telling, and I'll get to why that's telling in, in just a moment. But they published an opinion piece, the first of its kind in the New York Times, the alleged paper of record in the United States of America by semi-conservative Brett Stevens. He's mostly a virtue signaling conservative or Republican and certainly not a Trump guy, uh, Brett Stevens. But he wrote a column with the headline, the masks, mask mandates did nothing. Will any lessons be learned? The mask mandates did nothing. Will any lessons be learned? Again, it's an opinion piece, but it's based on very solid facts and largely on the Cochrane review study that I just referred to. Let me read to you a little bit from Stephen's column. The most rigorous and comprehensive analysis of scientific studies conducted on the efficacy of masks for reducing the spread of respiratory illnesses, including COVID 19 was published late last month. Its conclusions, said Tom Jefferson, the Oxford epidemiologist who is its lead author, were unambiguous. Quote, there is just no evidence that they, masks, make any difference. Full stop. Unquote. Then Stevens writes, but wait, hold on. What about N95 masks, as opposed to lower quality surgical or cloth masks. Turns out they don't do anything either. Now, that's how the column begins. Of course, it's in the New York Times, so there has to be some virtue signaling. There has to be some fig leaf to provide the readers of the Times with some level of psychological protection for those that have been wearing a mask for over two years, many of whom have been doing so religiously and don't want to believe, desperately don't want to believe, that they did this for absolutely no reason whatsoever. So I don't know whether Stevens was forced into doing this, I, having been a columnist, senior columnist at Mediate, and having written about this very same subject two years ago, and knowing how incredibly difficult it was to get past the editors at Mediate on this topic. I have a suspicion that he was forced to put in the virtue signaling because I've been in situations where I was forced to put in the virtue signaling, even though I was dead right about this subject and wrote about it multiple times back in 2020 and 2021. Uh, But here's what then Stevens wrote uh, to provide a fig leaf of protection for the psyche of the mass cult. No study or study of studies is ever perfect science is never absolutely settled what's more the analysis does not italics not prove that proper masks properly worn had no benefit at an individual level people may have good personal reasons to wear masks and they have had the discipline to wear them consistently their choices are their own but When it comes to the population-level benefits of masking, the verdict is in. Mask mandates were a bust. Those skeptics who were furiously mocked as cranks and occasionally censored as misinformers, like me, for opposing mandates were right. The mainstream experts and pundits who supported mandates were wrong. In a better world, it would behoove the latter group to acknowledge their error, along with its considerable physical, psychological, pediological, and political costs. Now, I would suggest that the person that wrote the second paragraph there that I just read did not voluntarily write the first paragraph because those are two completely incompatible thoughts. But let me just, for the record, address this incredibly bogus and actually dangerous concept that, no, on the individual level, you know, masks still might do something. It's just they didn't work on a population level. That's bullcrap. That is nothing but therapy. That is that fig leaf of protection for the psyche of the mass cult member. And I have seen it already in reaction to this column by Brett Stevens, because I've tweeted about it quite a bit and have gotten a lot of response. And I've gotten consistently from people who do not appear to be complete cranks. This idea that, no, no, John, you're totally misunderstanding the Cochrane Review because the Cochrane Review did say that it's possible that individually masks might do something. And then going from there is this idea that, you know, we just didn't do it right. If we had just masked harder, <laughs> masks would have actually done something. Well, first of all, this this is absurd. this is This is a logical fallacy, because we have this thing called real world data, and we also have this thing called thousands of different jurisdictions in the world, hundreds and hundreds of them here in, in America that had different uh, uh, compilations of COVID data. But around the world, there are literally thousands of cities, counties, states, countries. Min, whatever municipality you, you want to define that had their own rules with regard to masks, and you mean to tell me you can't find one place in the world, one place in the world that can definitively show, yep, here's where masks were actually used properly, and here's where they actually worked. Not one place in the world. And of course, as I've said constantly, and this gets completely ignored in the media, completely ignored. Only. Gets, gets attention in one direction. At the beginning of the pandemic, when Asia seemed to be doing well, the reason was masks. Oh, they're just such good mask wearers there. So I don't know what the hell happened in 2022, whether they got a massively huge ba- batch of horrible masks, broken masks, dysfunctional masks, or if they just stopped you know, knowing how to mask properly. No one has ever accused the Asians of not knowing how to mask and certainly not in South Korea, and certainly not in Japan. And if you look at the transmission data in South Korea, especially and in Japan and, area, and, and elements of 2022, most of 2022, it was among the worst, if not the worst, in the entire world. How the hell does that happen? You cannot tell me that there's not one place on the planet that knows how to mask properly. That is nothing but a way for the mask cult to save face. Pun intended, given where you put the mask. The reality here is masks don't do anything. They never did anything. Everyone knew they didn't do anything. And it only changed three months into the pandemic in America because of a political sea change, because of panic, because the experts felt like they needed to do something and everything they were doing didn't do anything and because of Donald Trump. As I've said many, many times before, masks in America became a virtue signal and a signal of your anti Trumpism. And that's why it became popular. And that's why so called experts like Fauci had to, to switch their positions. They had to jump on board or they're going to get left behind. That's what that was about. Fauci was on record numerous times, not just once, and he wasn't lying, mocking. Masks at and before the time period when the pandemic really got serious, mocking them because he knew every expert knew. But once it became part of the religion, you could not go back. And the reality is, this had enormous impact. I mean, I I know I talk a lot about masks, and it's a pet peeve of mine. It's not just because I'm a libertarian. It was offensive to me that we were mandated to wear something that I knew didn't work or more more importantly, that my daughter was mandated to, to wear a mask while trying to learn at key points in her educational life where she has a learning disability and she's being forced to mask in a way that had absolutely no impact for a virus that had no chance of harming her in any serious way or any of her classmates. The whole thing was just insulting it was ridiculous I would have much preferred and and this would you know it's funny to me that this analogy uh, you know has different elements to it but if Governor Newsom our King Governor Newsom had mandated for the drought that school students every morning do a rain dance do a rain dance I would have been more in favor of that because at least that would have been somewhat fun there would have been exercise involved, and it would have been probably, you know, only five to ten minutes of their day, as opposed to all day, every day, being forced to wear a goddamn useless mask. And by the way, the impact on the drought would have been exactly the same. In fact, it would have might have been better because you could argue that masks had a negative impact on the transmission of the virus. If you look at the, the, the statistics, if you look at the charts, and granted, You can do almost anything you want with statistics. I'm aware of that. But the way I look at the data, at best, masks did nothing. And at worst, masks actually slightly harmed the problem for whatever reason, whether it's because people became too confident to, you know, were taking too much risk or whatever, or whether or not the virus was getting stuck in the mask or who who the hell knows. But there's a, you cannot make an argument based upon the, the data that I have seen, and I've looked at all of it, that in any objective fashion that masks helped when it came to the transmission of the COVID virus. You just cannot do it. And it is just astonishing to me, although so typical, that this had to happen in an opinion piece in the New York Times. And I've tweeted, and if you're on Twitter and go to my Twitter feed, Zygmunt Freud, you should check, take a look at it. I said it belongs in a museum. Someone has taken screenshots of some of the more hilarious reactions on the comments section to the New York Times op ed by Brett Stevens saying that mask mandates did nothing, because they are hilarious and they are telling. I mean, th- you wanna talk about therapy. These are people in deep, deep need of some real therapy. The mask cultists who are doing everything they possibly can to not accept the fact that they were wrong for over 2 years. And let's be clear, that this is a tough pill for them to swallow even if they don't have their mask on. It's a tough pill to swallow one because no one likes to admit they're wrong. But two, in this case, they have to admit that it was the knuckle dragging Trump supporters who were right. That's the part that is really driving them crazy. That's where they cannot possibly accept that reality. Because that goes too deeply into who they are. Because who they are as liberals are, they are the smart ones. They're the ones that are right. They're the party of science. They're the enlightened ones. They're the ones who care about their neighbors. No, they're the ones that got duped in a panic and decided that a mask was a signal of their virtue as well as their, their opposition to Donald Trump. That's what it was. And then once they got invested in them and they got invested in the child abuse that occurred because of them, there was absolutely no going back. And I've never seen anything like it. Uh, To answer Stephen's question, I think we will see it again because I don't think any lessons will be learned, largely because this is not going to be something that the news media ever says in a universal fashion. Yeah, we screwed this up, and this needs to be fixed. This is not going to be Duke lacrosse, one of the very few situations that was even remotely similar that ever got. Although, even though that one didn't get fully fixed, but that's another story for another day. But the reality is, this is not going to be a situation that gets fixed because there is too much harm done. And once there is that much harm done, no one's to take responsibility because there is blood on your hands. You don't want to admit you are wrong. You don't want to lose credibility, so you'd rather just pretend let's just play pretend. And as I've said, the nature of the news media is such that it's incredibly easy to play pretend, especially if the bulk of the news media outlets stick together on this. And since they all have a huge self-interest to stick together, I'm assuming they will. And I mentioned the fact that this had to be done in the New York Times via an opinion piece, which is very, very telling. David Zwieg, who's a, a respected author, tweeted Out Stephen's column last night, and in his tweet, I think he he said something very relevant here. So I didn't want to steal his thoughts. I'll give him credit for it. He says the remarkable thing here is that the only way the most prestigious data review on community masks, which found no clear evidence of benefit, made it into the paper of record, was in an opinion piece. The New York Times science desk did not deem it. Newsworthy. Right there. That's game, set, match. That's where we are now, folks. Where the paper of record decides that, you know what? We're not going to put this in the news pages because it will offend too many of our readers and make us personally look too bad because we have been completely invested in masks for a couple of years. I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. The first major study on masks in the pandemic, this should have ended with the Danish study.
0: Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back
2: Because the, the Danes did a, a study that was actually within the Cochrane Review of Studies, but they did a massive study fairly early on in the pandemic that basically came to the same conclusion Cochrane Review ended up coming up to, which is there's no discernible difference. There's no apparent impact of this. Now, w- within these studies, they Always, because these are still scientific people who have to live within their community. They always put out some fig leaf of plausible deniability in there. They do that for their own political survival. So they say things like, well, it's still theoretically possible that an individual mask might have some level of impact under perfect conditions. Okay, but that doesn't do anything for mask mandates. That doesn't do anything for the real world. And I don't even buy it, by the way. I I just think that's pure politics. But the Dana study was was published in the New York Times and got such a negative reaction from their mask-loving consumer base that the New York Times literally had to go in and change the headline. The original headline was something like, Dana study indicates masks don't do very much. That was, I think, almost word for word. It could be off by a few words, but that was basically the headline. And then the New York Times, after getting blitzed by their own readers, added, but here's why you should wear one anyway. Here's why you should wear one anyway, even though this Danish study indicates they don't actually work. That's how invested the New York Times and thus the rest of the mainstream news media, which follows the New York Times, was in masks. And there was story after story after story at times using completely bogus studies, like the one that tried to claim that mask mandates helped in schools. And of course, when it comes to these studies, it was always incredibly easy, incredibly easy to manipulate the results because COVID always came and went in waves. So it depended on when you started the study And when you ended it, you could always get any result you wanted, but you had to do it over time. And over time, it is abundantly clear that the mask mandates, there's no place on earth. There's no place on earth, despite this unprecedented real world data that we've accumulated for almost three years now. Now, one place on earth where you can definitively say, yep, here's a place where mask mandates clearly worked and it's near a place that where they didn't have them and it didn't work. Or, you know, here's a place that didn't have mandates, they added mandates and all of a sudden their transmission uh spread went way down and then they were lifted, they lifted the mask mandates and it went back up. Never. Never happened. In the entire world, that has never happened in three years because they don't work. And the reality is that the news media will never force because that's the only way to get this to never happen again. You must force everybody to understand that this is the reality. I still see it here in Southern California all the time. It's, it's not huge numbers, but it's not insignificant numbers. And it, it drives me crazy, especially when it's kids being masked. And especially when the kids are masked, say, in a playground and the parents aren't masked. That one really drives me bananas. And and my daughter who hates masks, I mean, she can tell when I'm about to lose it and she will go come up to me and grab my hand and say, dad, don't do anything. I don't want to be embarrassed. And so I have to sit there and bite my tongue and not tell these people what morons they are. It's it's quite stressful. (laughs) But the reality is that um, my side was right. We will never get full vindication. I basically left my job, my gig as the senior columnist at Media, largely because I was so tired of having to fight them over mask mandates and then to a lesser degree. That was the end of 2021, was when I started to realize that the vaccines don't really do much either. And the combination of that, it was just too much. It's just not worth it. So I gave up. And I that's why I, I'm pretty sure Stevens had to fight like hell just to get this opinion piece into the New York Times. I don't know how much. More conversation that's going to spark. it certainly has on Twitter, and now that Elon Musk is in charge of Twitter, that conversation has a lot better chance of of gaining traction than it did in the prior regime. <laughs> that's for sure. So I have a little bit of optimism when it comes to you know doing the main thing, which is to prevent this from ever happening again. I do think that there's some optimism on that level. I, I, I do think it would be more difficult now for mask mandates to ever be reinstated uh, than it certainly was back in, in May of 2020. The fact that this all happened without one legislature, without one congressional body ever voting in favor of a mask mandate, without even a serious debate, even on in the media, is just amazing to me. All these mask mandates happened because of either governor edicts or you know on the federal level and on planes because of executive orders by the president um or by local health directors who are basically marxists most of whom aren't even qualified for their jobs now i mean talk about democracy dying in darkness there's never in my in my lifetime i cannot recall anything certainly nothing that had this much of an impact on real life than mask mandates when it came to democracy just being completely thrown aside because we were mandated, although you could argue that there really never was a mandate, but certainly on planes there were. uh, But the reality is in the real world, there were mask mandates that were being enforced without any semblance of democratic process. And so that's another level of, of why I found the whole thing to be offensive. On this topic... I've never mentioned this. I don't think I have on the podcast before. And, and so I'm kind of stuck. Do I want to get deeply into it? But I do at least want to mention it. One, because it's interesting. And I have tweeted about it a few times. And it certainly relates to this topic. Yesterday, we got some bad news in a lawsuit that I was a plaintiff on against Governor Newsom involving the school closings here in California. I was one of the original plaintiffs that were about, I don't know seven or eight of us parents of public school kids in California who sued Governor Newsom over his needless and I believe illegal closing of public schools the case was called Brock v Newsom and you know we, we we appealed it all the way to the US Supreme Court and we, the US Supreme Court decided not to hear our appeal So there were various losses, a few victories along the way. Uh, You know, we were not surprised that we didn't get any uh, satisfaction in California. The appellate courts didn't help us out either. But uh, we did fight it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And for whatever reason, and it seems as if the reason is that because schools are now open, that somehow this is no longer a a case with any relevancy from a legal standpoint. I don't see how that is is true. It's certainly from a practical standpoint is troubling because basically it allows any governor to shut down the schools for as long as it takes for a case to get to the Supreme Court. I mean, especially in a place like California, where all the courts are going to be on the side of a liberal governor. So effectively, as long as you don't keep the schools closed long enough for a case to get to the Supreme Court, you're going to be fine. That seems to be the lesson here. But uh, uh, on the other side, at least the fight was fought as long as it could be all the way to the Supreme Court. And unfortunately, the U.S. Supreme Court decided to take a pass on that appeal. So once again, no accountability for King Gavin Newsom when it comes to his COVID response. Allegedly, his COVID emergency is going to expire at the end of this month. And um, I'm sure in the next episode of the podcast, uh, I'll do a quick review. (laughs) of, of uh, how Newsom did. It won't be that quick because it's it's a horrifying record of how Newsom has done over the last almost three years exactly of this uh, bogus emergency. Now, another topic I want to get into that um, I should have referenced in episode 34. So I really did a really lousy job on episode 34, at least when it came to the uh, production of it. In episode number 34, I should have talked about it, another clip from the mainstream news media, this one not having to do with COVID, but having to do with Ron DeSantis. And it comes from an interview that NBC's Andrea Mitchell did with Vice President Kamala Harris. So this happened last week, and somehow it didn't hit my radar quickly enough to get into episode number 34. So I'll get to it now. So here Andrea Mitchell is interviewing Kamala Harris and uh, and she decides to ask about Ron DeSantis. Now, I, I referenced in episode 34 how the governor of Florida is in a really bad spot because he's not even a candidate yet. And yet everybody, everybody is incentivized to attack Ron DeSantis. Democrats are. Trump is. The Lincoln Project is. Other Republican candidates are. The right wing media has very little incentive to defend him, except maybe elements of Fox News Channel. Uh, You know, there's he's basically being attacked from all sides because the the Democrats aren't completely stupid. They know that anybody but Trump is going to be more difficult to beat than Trump. Trump is as easy as it gets because 55 percent of the American public already hates him. And so they don't fear Trump at all but they would fear Ron DeSantis, who just won the state of Florida by by 20 points based upon a very strong position, which was antithetical to their position, specifically on COVID and other cultural matters. So that's why DeSantis scares them. So Andrea Mitchell is talking to the vice president. What the hell the vice president's view on Florida's educational system and how that is relevant is beyond me. I guess this is under the guise of race. And this is where we, we have to live under the pretend world that Kamala Harris is a quote unquote black or African-American uh, uh, vice president, which she's not. Now, she is a woman of color, but she's not African by any stretch of the imagination. If you look at her family background, that's it's Jamaican. And the reality is that you know a lot of people in the black community do not consider her to be quote unquote black. Now, I'm not the arbiter of that. I don't know what the definitions are anymore. I, I get that she's a woman of color. I get that that has significance. I'm not demeaning that. But but somehow, Andrew Mitchell decided that it was perfectly appropriate to not just ask Kamala Harris about education in Florida from this non-presidential candidate, Ron DeSantis, trying to ban this AP African-American studies course, which we've talked about previously, but to also lie, lie, flat out lie about what was happening in Florida and claiming that somehow the teaching of slavery would be would be banned in Florida thanks to Ron DeSantis. And as we play this clip, there's two things that I think are most noteworthy. One is the the absurdity of the question based upon a lie, an obvious lie, but two, it's an obvious softball, a softball that Kamala Harris is so inept in in handling that it's she basically she barely makes contact. It's basically a nub back to the pitcher despite getting this softball pitch from Andrew Mitchell. so it really kind of exposes how bad at this Kamala Harris is. but here's what it sounded like when Andrew Mitchell pitched this softball to Vice President Harris.
0: Let me ask you, what does Governor Ron DeSantis not know about black history and the black experience when he says that slavery and the aftermath of slavery should not be taught to Florida school children? I don't know what he knows and what he doesn't know, but I know this. Any push to censor America's teachers and tell them what they should be teaching in the best interest of our children in in partnership with the parents of America is I think um, wrong-headed the people who know our children best are their parents and their teachers in terms of the time they spend and the investment they've placed in the brains and capacity of our children who are our nation's future and it should not be some politician saying what should be taught in our
2: classrooms. And just to be clear, it is actually Florida law requiring, requiring that slavery be taught in public schools. This AP African-American studies class, which the college, which the college board has, has decided is, is not going to be uh, taught in Florida, and DeSantis is effectively one on this is effectively as i've referred to it previously a trojan horse it's a trojan horse to get in all sorts of other crazy things because let's be clear and i've said this before but it bears repeating
4: lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do.
0: In the car before my kid's PTA meeting.
4: Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
0: I never win and
4: tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website
2: for details. Who are the people that are going to be teaching this course? They're going to be people who are obviously Black. And they're not going to be conservative Blacks. They're going to be liberal, usually very, very liberal Blacks. And that mean, doesn't mean they shouldn't be allowed to teach. But when you get they give them a Trojan horse to get into a class under the realm of African-American studies, and with this curriculum, which was very pro-critical race theory, very pro-America is bad, very pro-reparations, very pro-affirmative action, that... Is a political course that is a political agenda that is a political act of political activism, and DeSantis rightfully and uh, and smartly is trying to nip that in the bud. But that is not the, the essence of the even close to the essence of the question that Andrew Mitchell asked. Interestingly, NBC was asked by a conservative media outlet to. Retract the lie, or at least respond to the lie. And NBC didn't even respond to them. NBC just said basically pound sand. We, we don't we don't need we have no need to defend the question, even though it was a lie. But this is what's going to happen to Ron DeSantis, all from every angle. And you know what they do with DeSantis is they try to find like what they did with don't say gay. You know they got to find one line where they completely misrepresent what he's doing. That the average or the stupid person will go. Oh, that doesn't sound right. Wait, you're not gonna. You're not allowed to teach about slavery. That doesn't sound right. That's terrible. It sounds racist. Well, that's not what's happening. And but this narrative, these narratives get created very, very easily. And once they're created, they're almost impossible to reverse, as we've seen time and time again, especially in this modern era. And so these things have great danger. If Ron DeSantis is going to be a Republican presidential uh, contender or, or the nominee and and in the general election, now speaking of DeSantis being attacked from all sides, we're, we're very close now to making it a, a weekly, if not uh, every episode, feature on the death of journalism to do the latest attack by Donald Trump against Ron DeSantis. And again, to be clear, Ron DeSantis not a candidate, not a candidate. Donald Trump, not just the candidate, but the clear front runner right now. Former president, owner of a cult that has at least 35 to 40 percent of the Republican base in his pocket, and, and the guy who obviously has by far the greatest name recognition, and already announced. He's been announced for months, already going around the country, campaigning, not as much as he probably should, but he's already doing campaign events. And who's he going after? Ron DeSantis. And he's doing so, I believe, in a way that is floundering, but uh, I also think is very telling on a lot of different fronts. So here's the latest from Truth Social, because Donald Trump doesn't do many television interviews anymore. Fox News Channel doesn't seem to be that interested in having him on very often. And, you know, uh, he's not on Twitter yet. And suppose, supposedly he's going to go on uh, Facebook again soon, but I haven't seen that occur. So here uh, from Truth Social is Donald Trump's latest attack, at least as of this taping, on the, the Republican conservative Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Trump wrote, Florida was doing great, capital letters, long before Ron DeSantis. Ron De Sanctus now. We're going with Ron De Sanctus as we've we've been trying all sorts of different things. Ronda sanctimonious, Meatball Ron, Shutdown Ron. Ron De Sanctus. I actually kinda like that, even though I really hate it, but I mean, you know, as, as in comparison to the others, Ron De Sanctus, I, I kinda like, I gotta admit. Before Ron De Sanctus got there, people are fleeing from New York to Florida and other places because of high taxes and out of control crime not because of Governor, thank you, President Trump, exclamation point, De sanctimonious. Rick Scott did great. And even Charlie Crist had very good numbers. Sunshine and ocean, very alluring, exclamation point. So Trump is basically saying, you know, that great Florida success story that has nothing to do with Ron De Sanctus. It has everything to do with the nature of Florida. Anybody could be a good governor in Florida. Sunshine and ocean and, you know, low taxes and low crime. Well, I wonder why you have low taxes and low crime. And I'm even going to somewhat compliment Charlie Crist. (laughs) Donald Trump is going to compliment Charlie Crist, a Democrat who just got slaughtered by Ron DeSantis by 20 points in the race for governor in Florida. That's where Donald Trump is now. Now, obviously, DeSantis is living rent-free in Donald Trump's head, without a question. I mean, Trump claims that he's not obsessed, but the more he claims he's not obsessed, the more obvious it is that he is obsessed. And he, it's understandable the way Trump's psyche works. Trump is very, very insecure, uh, and he's very insecure about his own manhood, and I, And especially when it came to COVID, DeSantis showed himself to be far more manly than Trump was because Trump curled up in the fetal position and then walled in his own poop that he had crapped the bed with. And, and America was basically destroyed because of it. And so Trump knows this at some level. and he also knows that DeSantis, uh, you know, is younger stronger. He's in office. He's doing things and getting results that Trump never got. He's winning elections in ways that Trump never did. Uh, 20 points in Florida, even after Trump dropped Ron DeSantis for the first time just a few days before election day, which I think Trump thought was going to ding DeSantis's numbers, but clearly did not. And so Trump is obsessed with DeSantis. Um, And, uh, you know, I think that's telling. In an irrational world, that would erode Trump's support as the alpha male because he's not acting like the alpha male. DeSantis is acting like the alpha male by basically ignoring Trump, staying above the fray, responding only when absolutely necessary. And when he's responding, he's saying, scoreboard, look at the results I'm getting. And Trump is just attacking. Now, what is Trump's game here? With Trump, it's always very dangerous to try to be too nuanced in interpreting whatever he's doing, whatever strategy there is, because I do believe that he is at best a checkers player, not a chess player. Uh, He might even only be a shoots and ladders player (laughs) or Candyland player. Um, So I, I, I hesitate to attribute too much strategy to it, but I will say whether it's intended or not, This is going to have a negative impact on DeSantis in ways that I don't think are fully appreciated. I don't think it's going to move the numbers between DeSantis and Trump individually. I don't think that Uh, because I don't think I don't think this is getting out to very many people. Uh, It's mostly only going to his very, very hardcore base on Truth social and maybe a little bit on Twitter because then people share it on Twitter. And then, you know, I guess I don't even know what the fringe right wing outlets are doing. My guess is that they're mostly ignoring it because it's just a battle that doesn't help them at all right now. And so they're just letting Trump be Trump. So I don't think it's going to help Trump at all when it comes to primary polling between him and DeSantis. But let me tell you where I think it may. And I don't know that this is the intention, but if it is, it's almost a genius move by Trump. And here's where it's going to hurt DeSantis. I believe it will hurt DeSantis when it comes to polling between DeSantis and Biden. And you're like, what? Zig, how could that work? I don't understand. You're saying it's not going to impact polling between Trump and DeSantis, but it might impact polling between DeSantis and Biden. Well, let me explain. Because Trump has a cult, all he has to do is convinced a very small percentage i don't know 5 10% of his cult say say 5 or 10% of his cult which i consider to be at least 35% of the republican party so if if you're talking about 5 to 10% of the cult and that's 35% you know, thir- the cult is 35% of the of the republican party you're still talking about a couple of solid percentage points of general election Republican voters. And if Trump is able to convince that 5% or 10% of his his cult base that DeSantis is a horrible guy, that he's disloyal, that he hasn't done anything, that he's a bad candidate, a bad person, if he's able to do that, then when they get called by a pollster and they get asked, All right, in a theoretical general election matchup between Biden and DeSantis, who do you support? They are far more likely to say, I'm not sure, or maybe even say a third party if that's an option, or maybe even Biden if they really have been convinced to hate DeSantis that he's somehow the Antichrist because the cult leader told them that he's the Antichrist. And why does that matter? Well, because all that it takes, all that it takes, Especially since DeSantis does not have universal name recognition yet. See, the way this having been a pollster, I I know how this works, DeSantis is at an inherent disadvantage in any any head-to-head battles with Biden when it comes to polling, because there's a certain percentage of the population that just doesn't know who he is. So they're very unlikely to say, oh, well, I support DeSantis over the current president. In most cases, they're just going to say, I don't know. And and if you look at the polling between Biden and DeSantis, there's a ton of unknown, a ton of undecided. Interestingly, currently Biden does, uh, gets a lower percentage against DeSantis than he does against Trump, which makes sense because Trump is obviously far more hated than DeSantis. But where, to get to my bottom line here is if only a couple of percentage points of normal Republican voters when polled either say they don't know that they're going to vote for DeSantis or that they might even vote for Biden it eliminates DeSantis, one of DeSantis's potentially biggest and most important advantages, which is to be able to say, I'm more electable than Donald Trump. And if I'm right about the impact on this, and I don't know if this is the intention or not, what we're going to see here is that in polling, and let's be clear, it's a lot easier for a Trump cultist to tell a pollster, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden, than it would be to actually vote for Joe Biden, right? That's a totally different world. Because a pollster, it doesn't count. You're just sending a message. And so I believe what we're going to see here, assuming DeSantis runs, and this plays out anything close to the conventional wisdom, we're going to see a situation where Desantis's numbers against Biden are not going to be much, if at all, better than Trump's. And it's not because DeSantis doesn't appeal to undecideds or independents or moderates. It's because the Trump cult isn't fully supporting him in the polls. Again, I don't know whether or not Trump is smart enough to figure this out, but I think it's going to work. I think that DeSantis is going to be seen, not that polling matters as much as it used to because Republicans and conservatives don't trust polling, but if you're going to make the electability argument, you're still going to have some data to back it up. And I think by demonizing DeSantis, Trump has, again, maybe inadvertently, masterfully uh, basically put a weight on DeSantis's back when it comes to showing his electability against Joe Biden. And so this is yet another problem for the scenario of Ron DeSantis somehow surviving what's going to be a food fight at best for the Republican nomination, and then defeating likely Joe Biden in the general election. One of those who seems to agree with me on the way things are looking is former Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney. It's remarkable to think that Mitt Romney, just over 10 years ago, just over 10 years ago, Mitt Romney was not just the standard bearer for the Republican Party. For about two days, the Republican media anointed him as the next president of the United States and the next Ronald Reagan. I mean, that's, people forget, but two days before the, the 2012 presidential election, when the polls were looking pretty good for Romney, I never thought that he was going to win. I thought it would be closer than it ended up being, but but I never predicted, I, I always predicted Obama would win, and he did. But the perception in the right-wing media was, oh my God, Romney's going to pull this off, he's going to be the new Reagan, and now here he is, you know, almost a man without a party, and I'm not sure he's even going to win re-election in Utah, which would have been inconceivable not long ago. But Romney has made some comments that I think are really interesting and, and uh, rather depressing. But Romney has said, quote, I think President Trump is by far the most likely to become our nominee. OK, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Oh, a book club.
0: Computer solitaire. Huh?
4: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life.
2: No purchase necessary. BTW, Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. If Trump wins the Republican nomination, Romney said, quote, I won't be supporting President Trump. And I believe that Romney's thinking on this is very similar to mine. Uh, which is that when you have too many candidates in the race, it gives Trump too much of an advantage and that we are basically repeating the mistakes of 2016. Nikki Haley is already in. There's a couple of other candidates that have already gotten in. I'm going to get to one of them in a moment that just got into the race. It's clear that this is going to turn out, at least at the start, to be at least a six or seven person race at the beginning, maybe more than that. But that's When they have the first debates, assuming Trump shows up, uh, that's going to be the situation where you're going to have a a very crowded, hopefully not as crowded as it was in 2016, but more than crowded enough to cause a problem. And the more candidates you have, the better chance it is that a guy who has a cult with 35 to at least 40%, depending on the state of the vote wrapped up, that they're going to be able to win. When you have a very enthusiastic, thirty-five to forty-five percent, again depending on the state, uh, of a voter support in a cult-like fashion, that is impossible to beat in a five, six, seven-person race. You just can't do it. And and part of the reason why you can't do it is the. Let's take the sixty percent. That I'm just going to use that number for you know, for sake of argument. It might be lower. It might be higher. But it's somewhere in the realm of. 55, 60 percent of the Republican Party that is very, very, very willing to vote for someone other than Trump in the in the primary process, right? But the problem is that 55 or 60 percent of the Republican base, likely Republican primary voters, they're the free thinkers. They're obviously not the cult members, right? Well, the free thinkers have a much higher standard they have to be won over. The, they, and if anything happens that they don't like, uh, when they have other options, they're going to go to that option. And, you know, and, and and so my point here is that it's going to be really difficult for DeSantis to corral that 55%, which I'll, I'll use the analogy of cats, right? The old analogy, you can't, you can't corral cats. The the fifty five to sixty percent of the Republican Party that's not in the Trump cult, they're cats, and it's very difficult to herd them all together, and it, especially when there's too much competition, and so that's one of the many problems I see happening for Desantis. Not to mention this 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 phenomenon that I've talked about now in, in the last two episodes of this podcast. Where everybody is incentivized to go after him, even before he's a damn candidate. Now, there is a new candidate into the race, a guy by the name of Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek Ramaswamy, a guy who you probably have never heard of before. I've been aware of him for a little while because I've seen his videos on Twitter. He's obviously Indian, he's a a conservative business person. He is a very good speaker, and he announced. His candidacy, I guess, on Tucker Carlson's streaming show, and then again on Fox and Friends this morning. And Vivek uh, has a lot to offer from a policy standpoint and a philosophy perspective. And again, he's a very good spokesperson. He speaks almost too well. He's a little too fast, a little too smooth for my liking, because I always wonder, okay, am I being snowed by somebody if they're that polished? But he's great on television. I actually think that's probably a large part of what is motivating his candidacy, which is where I start to get agita. Because again, this is exactly what happened in 2016, where people saw a chance to promote their own careers, their brands, their personas, get a gig on Fox News Channel, whatever it is, by by running for president. Well, if this was not such a serious situation and the margin for error was not so narrow, I would have a little bit of patience for this. Okay. You know, it's he's a person of color, I guess. He's Indian. He's smart. I like his ideas. He's a good spokesperson. What harm could he do? In normal times, that's how I would respond to a candidacy like Vivek's. These aren't normal times. These are not normal times the only thing that matters is, is Donald Trump going to be the Republican nominee in 2024? And anything that promotes that happening, in my view, is inherently bad. Doesn't matter if it's bright and shiny and smells nice. It's inherently bad because Trump is very likely to lose. Now, by the way, just by, I might shock you uh, when it comes to Romney's statement that he's not going to support Trump if he's the nominee. As much as I hate Donald Trump and I loathe him and I blame him for almost everything that's happened, either directly or indirectly, uh, during and since his presidency, especially from the cultural perspective, I believe he unleashed the hell that was COVID and all the wokeness that. Ensued, and, and it's not all directly his fault, but a lot of it is indirectly his fault, and he's the he's what provoked it. And I I despise him in every way. I would actually support Trump more in twenty twenty four against Biden. I am not sure I would vote for him. I'd have to think long and hard about that. I did not vote for him in twenty twenty. I did not vote for Biden in twenty twenty. I voted for the Libertarian candidate just on principle, but in twenty twenty four. I would actually be rooting for Trump against Biden, purely because the policies would be slightly better than they were under Biden, and also from a symbolic standpoint. This is where I, I you know, Romney and I would differ. In from a symbolic standpoint, there would be some value, some value, in having the guy that was ousted because of the COVID pandemic be reinstated four years later, because historically it would look like, kind of like when we elected George W. Bush after eight years of Bill Clinton, who defeated George W. Bush's dad, it would be the same concept. That in my view, George W. Bush got elected as a rejection of Bill Clinton. And if Trump got elected in 2024, there would at least be some historical repudiation of what happened in 2020 with regard to COVID. But the problem with that is I don't see it happening. <laughs> I don't see Trump beating Biden. It's possible, but it's unlikely. It would, it, would, it would require a really bad turn in the economy, which is certainly possible. But uh, as of right now, I think Biden would beat Trump and it would be almost a, a rerun, uh, almost literally, of the 2020 election. And so I'm, I'm differing with Romney on that, but I'm not differing with Romney on the imperative of preventing Trump from being the nominee, which I'm beginning to think is inevitable because I'm the only person I know of that is feeling as strongly about this, or at least speaking publicly about it in the way that I am. And I'm seeing the exact same mistakes that were made in 2016 being made now where people like Vivek think, well, this is cool. I'm just going to run. I want to get on the debate stage, and I have something to add to the debate. Okay, okay. Again, under normal circumstances, fine and dandy. These are not normal circumstances. And I'm sorry, Vivek, but you, whether inadvertently or on purpose, are helping Donald Trump be the nominee. Nikki Haley, same deal. Nikki Haley far more than Vivek, although I I, I think Vivek could catch fire. He's, He's an interesting guy. I don't know if he has enough money to catch fire, um, but you know he would be he he would he'd be somebody that if he made the debate stage, a lot of those cats I referred to might go, oh, that's an interesting one. Let me let me check that one out. And every time that happens, that's a problem for DeSantis, and it's good for Trump. And by the way, I think Trump knows that. All right, and now uh, moving on to a couple other stories in the political realm. It is interesting that Tucker Carlson, speaking of Tucker Carlson, who Vivek uh, announced his candidacy on his streaming show, Tucker Carlson is now going to be the guy who is in possession of almost all of some over 40,000 hours worth of tapes that were recorded on January 6th and the so-called insurrection, the riot, the protests, again, the storming of the Capitol, whatever you want to call it, January 6th of 2021. And Tucker is already promoting that next week they're going to start airing some of the video that they were given by the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, that had previously not been made public. And of course, Democrats are all up in arms about this. This is a security breach, security breach, security breach. I have no idea if it's really a security breach. That seems like a stretch to me. That sounds like the excuse you would give if you were really afraid of the substance of something that was going to come out. I really don't like the January 6th uh, issue, and it's not just because it requires you to either take a pro or anti-Trump stance. I mean, I think it was an embarrassment to America. I think Trump was partially responsible. I think Democrats way overplayed their hand. I think the media way overplayed their hand. I I think some of the people that were uh, convicted and 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 uh, sentenced on this were overcharged because of the politics involved in this. I think that's obvious. I think the number of deaths has been lied about by the media and even by the president of the United States uh, because nobody was directly killed because of the protesters. In fact, the only person that was directly killed that day was a protester herself, Ashley Babbitt. So I, I think Basically, it's a pox on everybody's house on January 6th. I don't trust that Tucker Carlson is going to be able to come up with a straight story because there's absolutely a great desire on the part of conservative media consumers to come up with a narrative that at least muddies the water about what happened that day. And there's this, this growing conspiracy theory that it was all a big setup and that the, you know, that, that the people that were there, many of them, uh, you know, weren't even Trump supporters, and that they were the ones that provoked the the riot, and that this was all an inside job. And I just that, without some really, really, really good evidence of that, I get I get the heebie-jeebies, and it really just it it gets depressing. And I, and so, if I've ignored or or lessened my coverage of January sixth, it's largely because of that. And I I just don't like the fact that we have to muddy the water about everything now. I mean it 's almost like masks, you know liberals were totally wrong about masks, but they got to muddy the water in some way, shape or form, so that they can save face in a different way. I feel like uh, can some conservatives are doing that with regard to january sixth i mean it was it was a bad situation, it was terrible, it was embarrassing uh, well, did everyone did a lot of people do wrong on on both sides i 'm sure they did. I think I just outlined my my general thoughts on the whole situation, but I will keep an eye. I promise, on what Tucker does with those tapes. And if anything interesting happens, we'll talk about it here on The Death of Journalism. Speaking of President uh, Joe Biden, uh, he obviously uh, made a surprise trip to Ukraine, along with a uh, (laughs) a very convenient air raid siren that just happened to hit for the first time in days while he and President Zelensky were touring Kyiv. Um, and of course, that's gotten a lot of publicity around the one-year anniversary of the, the war with Russia. This is another topic that I don't talk a lot about, partially because I, I don't feel like I'm an expert on it. The part of this that I do find interesting, though, is the popularity of President Zelensky uh, among the US media and among liberals. And I, I really see Zelensky as almost like a Fauci-like figure. They have a lot of similarities, especially in the essence of their popularity. I actually did a Twitter poll about this the other day on my Twitter feed, and my suspicions were, I think, uh, vindicated to some degree in the results. And basically, my hypothesis is that Zelensky and Fauci are incredibly powerful powerful and popular among left-wing media and among the liberal consumer base for basically the same reason, which is that they are both seen as anti-Trump figures who actually got some results when no one else would. I mean, Fauci, I believe, is popular among the left, largely because they saw him as the guy that finally brought down Trump. Nobody else could do it. Robert Mueller blew it, but Fauci finally got the bastard. And that's why they will be forever loyal to him, no matter how wrong he is, no matter how much damage is done. Uh, uh, Dr. Fauci is is always going to be a hero to them. And Zelensky is similar because Zelensky was the, the, the source, the essence, the foundation of the first impeachment of Donald Trump. And I truly believe, because it is kind of bizarre that It's liberals that are now pro-war, conservatives that are anti-war. It's liberals that are anti-Russia. It's conservatives that are seemingly at least not, if not pro-Russia, at least not anti-Russia. This is all upside down. Well, the reason why it, part of why it happened, because, you know, basically the whole world revolves around Trump now. Part of how this happened is that Zelensky was seen as an anti-Trump figure. That Trump was bullying Zelensky, and that's what caused the impeachment. And because Trump was seen as pro-Putin, liberals inherently have lobby and dog fashion, much like with masks. You know, the the mask becomes the anti-Trump virtue signal. Well, if Putin likes Trump or vice versa, that means Putin bad. And that means Zelensky good. And so therefore, we're going to be on the side of Zelensky, even if it means. We're on the side of continuing a war that doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And we're also continuing billions and billions of dollars going to the Ukraine, including to pay their pensions uh, with American tax money in a situation where we're already up to our eyeballs in debt. And it's just the whole thing is bizarre. I mean, it, it breaks all the political norms. Everything is upside down. But I do think that from a media perspective, that Zelensky and Fauci, and by the way, they share some common characteristics, including massive egos, and and, uh, and 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 the reputation of of accomplishing far more than they actually have. And I'm not against Ukraine in this. Look, I don't want Ukraine to get destroyed. I don't want Russia to be able to to take get another foothold and do whatever the heck they want to do. I also don't want World War III. So I don't know a hundred percent, and because again, I'm not an expert in this area. What are National imperative is there, but I know we're spending a crap load of money, and I do know that the media narrative surrounding Zelensky is one that I don't trust as soon as you become such a celebrity in the left wing media that you know you and Sean Penn are uh giving out awards at the Golden Globes. <laughs> in the middle of a war, then uh, I'm automatically very, very cynical and skeptical of where you're coming from. So that's the issue with regard to the first anniversary of the the war in Ukraine and Biden's visit there. Another Joe Biden story that I particularly found very, very interesting, as will listeners to the podcast with the benefit of hindsight, which I did with Liz Habib about the entire. Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky, Penn State scandal from 2011. You may recall that the person who really put the final nail in the coffin of Joe Paterno in that story was former FBI Director Louis Free with the so called Free Report, which the media completely and totally embraced in one of the greatest acts of media manipulation I've ever seen in my entire life. It's one of my favorite episodes of with the benefit of hindsight is when we when we analyze the free report and the masterclass of manipulation he pulled off in that press conference that he gave uh, the only public statements they ever really gave with regard to any sort of media questioning about his conclusions that were totally erroneous and not based on anything with regard to the supposed cover up at Penn State for the crimes of Jerry Sandusky so i i despise louis free Ever since that time, I have watched his career very carefully, and he is a flat-out fraud. He has been fraudulent in almost every situation he's been involved in, with. He's a complete whore. I mean, that. I don't use that term lightly. He is a complete whore where his entire MO is to be paid based upon the fact that he was the former FBI director, and he will give you whatever conclusion you want. And boy, does he love a dollar. I mean, he will do almost anything for a dollar. He's embarrassed himself numerous times as people started to catch on to this scam. And I guess it's been more and more difficult for him to pull off the scam because the credibility has diminished. And obviously, it's been longer and longer since he was FBI director. And also, the reputation of the FBI has taken quite a hit. So my guess is it's not as easy for him to bilk these institutions out of millions and millions of dollars. So he targeted the Bidens. And apparently it came to fruition. This is a tweet last night from Paul Speary, who's a respected investigative journalist for Real Clear Politics. Paul tweeted breaking IRS filings revealed the Bidens added ex-FBI chief Louis Free to the board of directors of the Bo Biden Foundation after Free pumped a hundred thousand dollars into a trust fund for Joe Biden's grandkids. Free, who's Irish, referred to Biden as quote-unquote dad in emails found on Hunter's laptop. Now, you may also recall that Free, and this was, I'm sure, very much related to all this, effectively offered his services, his investigative services to, to, I'm going to create my own interpretation and paraphrase here, but basically we have emails of free pitching the Bidens on, Hey, why don't you hire me to do an investigation so I can absolve Hunter Biden? (laughs) I mean, that's, that's effectively what he's doing. And so, and and so it, it worked out for him. And this definitely is in the, in the realm of, of influence peddling and, and, and dirty laundry. Related to both Hunter Biden and apparently Bo Biden, and obviously Joe Biden. But in this case, because it was Louis Free, I just had to mention it because it's so consistent with who Louis Free is, what a total fraud he is, and how the media got completely and totally duped in a way that cemented, probably forever, this bogus narrative that somehow there was a cover-up at Penn State for Jerry Sandusky's crimes, which it turns out there was no cover-up because there were no crimes to cover up. And if you want more information on that, go check out our epic podcast with the benefit of hindsight. I want to move on to um, very quickly the Twitter files, which are continuing, I think, to be ongoing. They continue to wait for the so-called Fauci files, which were promised in the month of February, we're almost at the end of February now, and there's still been no quote-unquote Fauci files. But yesterday was interesting because Matt Taibbi, who's probably been the most prominent reporter on the Fauci file, not on the Fauci files, on the Twitter files, Freudian slip, on the Twitter files, which basically have documented what the previous Twitter regime did with regard to various important news stories, including the Hunter Biden laptop story, and obviously COVID and Russiagate, all sorts of different situations where it's now obvious that Twitter was in the tank for liberal narratives and was willing and able to censor people who had uh, opinions that were not approved of. And Taibbi, who has been probably the most prominent Twitter files reporter, blew off some steam, it felt like, yesterday on Twitter, which I found to be rather interesting because I think that they were expecting, and understandably so, that the Twitter files would create far more of a stir outside of Twitter than they have. By and large, much like is going to happen with masks and with natural immunity, the mainstream news media has continued to bottle up and contain any talk that makes them look bad. And since the Twitter files generally make them look very bad and promotes another media outlet, especially one that is now perceived as right-wing under Elon Musk, they don't have any incentive to do that. And so Taibbi put out a series of tweets blowing off steam and frustration over the fact that the Twitter files has largely been ignored outside of Twitter and outside of conservative media. And uh, this was how it began. Taibbi wrote, how journalism works when the press is real, colon. One reporter does a story. It may not be the whole story, but it's newsworthy. The next reporter finds the next piece of the puzzle. A third adds more. We compete, but all push the story forward. The Twitter file's response exposes a fake press. And then he goes on uh, to further explain what he means by that. And that really hit home with me. And I even responded to that tweet because of my Penn State experience which is incredibly similar, where I just proved uh, with the help of Liz and Mike Agavino, our producer, in this epic podcast, that one of the biggest news stories of this century was a complete and total fraud. And no one cares because it doesn't fit their agenda. It doesn't help them in any way. And as I tried to explain to Matt in response... The only reason why that happens is if the story fits the agenda or one of the agendas of the media outlet involved. Otherwise, they're just going to ignore it. And I, that's one of the reasons why I've always been so pessimistic about any chance of the Penn State story being salvaged, unless somehow Jerry Sandusky got exonerated in court, which is never going to happen because the court system is inherently very, very, very deeply invested against him, not to mention appeals are always very, very difficult in those situations, even to the best of circumstances. But the, the reality is I've always been very pessimistic because there's been no way, at least that I can think of, to somehow incentivize massive media outlets to embrace this counter-narrative. So even if, and those that have followed the story know We've been very close on a couple of different occasions to getting major mainstream news media coverage of the alternative narrative, my narrative, including the cover of Newsweek at one point. We were 36 hours away from that happening before it blew up after months and months of work. But even if that had occurred, I always knew it probably wasn't going to do very much because there were really only two options for the rest of the media. Because no one media outlet has the power to do anything anymore. It only has power when everybody's on the same side, which is why they had so much power in COVID, because everyone was singing the same tune at the same time, loudly. So even if you get, and I'm using the Twitter now Twitter file analogy here. So you have Twitter here breaking these massive stories, some of which have been a little overblown, but they've all been interesting and important. But you have Twitter... And you know, breaking these major stories from a media standpoint about uh, about all sorts of different things, including censorship of of major stories, including those that may have influenced the twenty twenty election, and but well, you don't have any pickup on it. Well, because it's not in their self interest, it's not in their agenda, and I've never been able to figure out, okay, how in the world. Do you get it to be in the agenda of the self-interest for anybody else to pick it up so it actually has influence beyond just the one outlet? Because I've always felt like there's only going to be two options. Either we're going to get destroyed because that's the incentive of the rest of the news media, or we're going to get ignored. Well, that's what's basically happened with the Twitter files. They didn't get destroyed, but they got ignored. Oh, well, you know, it's just not, we just didn't think it was that newsworthy. And, you know, maybe we mentioned it one time on our, our, our web page or something, uh, or on a tweet, and then we moved on. And so this actually, it's weird that the news media has lost power individually. They've They've lost so much power individually because of fragmentation and because of lack of trust. But they've actually increased power as a group, as long as they stick together, because it's never been easier to ignore stories that just doesn't fit their agenda or their self-interest. You you, you used to be able to shame them or guilt them, but you can't do that anymore. And the only way to make a real dent and to make uh, any real influence is if you have everybody or almost everybody on the same page telling the same story. And that's a very, very difficult thing to do, especially when the agendas... And the self-interests of the news media are so corrupted by the current circumstances where truth has nothing to do with any of it with it. Nothing to do with any of it. A great story has nothing to do with any of it. An injustice has nothing to do with any of it. Nothing. It's all about does the narrative fit the fairy tale that we are telling our core customers? That's what it's about. And that's why we're never gonna get the truth in the mainstream about masks or vaccinations or about uh, school closings or heck. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's unbel- there's so many unbelievable things regarding COVID, but I have not seen one one report in sports, in the sports world about, hey, you know when we shut down sports for most of a year and we killed sports crowds for a year and a half?
4: That's chumbacasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. BTW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Was that a good idea? Did that do anything? Should we do that again? There's not been one, not one that I've seen and anything close to an uh, a mainstream sports report. And this was a massive deal. Tens and millions of people's lives were dramatically impacted by this in negative fashions. I mean, millions and millions. I mean, the whole country was impacted negatively, by the way, that sports handled COVID. And there's not a shred of evidence that one life was saved because of what happened. And there's been zero introspection. Why? Because, well, the sports media played an important role in that. So why are they going to do, you know, basically an investigation of their own crime? They're just going to pretend the crime never actually existed, never happened. So we're going to move on. So it's depressing, but at least I think it's somewhat helpful to understand why things are the way they are. So if you're ever wondering, why why did that story get ignored? Well, that's why. And that's why the Twitter files have largely been ignored. I mentioned at the top of the podcast that I wanted to give an update on Don Lemon and James O'Keefe. Don Lemon, the uh, CNN now morning co-anchor with two female anchors, of course, was embroiled in a, a major controversy last week because out of the blue and talking about Nikki Haley and age and the presidency somehow decided that it was a good idea to talk about when a woman's prime was and that the prime of a woman is in their 20s, 30s, or maybe 40s, if they're lucky. I'm still baffled as to where the hell he thought he was going with this. Uh, I mean, again, if you're talking about physical attractiveness, okay, I I guess you could make that argument. Uh, That has nothing to do with a presidential run. And, and, of course, it really doesn't have anything to do with a presidential run since you can't even run for president until you're 35 from a constitutional standpoint. So it made no sense. He doubled and tripled down on the air. Then he apologized. Then he got taken off the air. And this morning he came back on the air and he gave another apology after having uh, attended sensitivity training. <laughs> So they they sent Don Lemon, a black gay man who pretends to be a liberal on the air to sensitivity. <laughs> how much how much more sensitive can you get? I mean, he's already black, gay and a liberal. At least he plays that on television. As I said in that episode 34, I know people who know him who say he's really not a liberal. And that if anything, he's moderate or maybe even right of moderate uh, from a political standpoint that he but he's basically an actor, as many of these spokes models are on network television news. And and so he goes to sensitivity training. He apologizes again on Twitter, and he goes back on the air. I did not see it this morning, but I do know that he he did go back on. And uh, it appears as if he's not going to be fired right now, because you wouldn't go through that whole rigmarole of taking someone off the air for a few days and then bringing them back and having them apologize publicly. I, I still believe, and and my, my main source, John Nicosia, who has basically been the sage of many of the things that were going to happen at CNN as they undergo massive changes under this new ownership, uh, seems to still indicate that Don Lemon's days are numbered. How numbered? I don't know. Uh, it's, it's kind of remarkable, though. If you were going to get rid of Don Lemon, you would think you would use this as a great opportunity. I mean, the ratings are terrible on the morning show and on the network in general. He had just been demoted. And then he makes this massive blunder that gives you a great hill to die on if you know if that's where you want to go with getting rid of Don Lemon. But maybe there's been reports that there's an internal struggle. I don't know how much I believe this, but it's interesting. There's an internal struggle at CNN between the old Jeff Zucker brigade, the guy who ran CNN for many years and then got ousted because of an inappropriate relationship with a co-worker, and, uh, and Chris Licht, who's the current head at CNN. And so there's a battle going on there for the soul of CNN. I don't know. It's, it's never, You can never tell what's real and what's tabloid and what just makes for a good story. But as of right now, at least, Don Lemon is still on at CNN and I would think would still be on for at least a while longer, at least until he steps into it one more time. The situation with James O'Keefe is maybe even more complicated James O'Keefe, of course, has been the founder and the CEO and the face of Project Veritas for many, many years and became famous, especially in conservative circles, for their remarkable sting operations. And they've just had their most successful sting operation ever, at least if you determine success by the number of views and the amount of publicity that's been created. But that was obviously with regard to their Pfizer sting operation. I have said many times on this podcast, I think that. The content, the substance of that, has been largely misunderstood and and overblown. But the, the tapes were certainly interesting. They were entertaining, and I was very concerned about the censorship of those tapes by Facebook and by YouTube, and then the follow-ups, uh, specifically with YouTube for for uh, doing what they did with regard to censoring the uh, the videos that they put out on the censors uh, on the on the Pfizer sting. But uh, over the last couple of episodes, we've talked about this roller coaster ride where James O'Keefe was put on paid leave, and then it appeared as if uh, he was going to be brought back. And then there was another reversal, and O'Keefe was said to have resigned. And then it was said that, no, uh, he was stripped of his authority as CEO, and now he's on uh, suspension without pay. And it's really difficult to know what's the truth and what's really going on after the last episode we taped episode number 34 there was the release of about a 45 minute i guess you would call it a speech by james o'keith where he where he gave his side of the story and it was still a bit confusing as to what was the bottom line because he he talked about he's no longer the ceo he's not on the board he was packing up his things and he was leaving and it, it it seems as if he's not at Project Veritas anymore. But if you look at his Twitter feed, his Twitter feed hasn't changed at all. It's still exactly the same as it was. So it's not clear that he's been actually fired. He's just not in charge. Um, I I've said previously this at best was handled very very poorly by those at Project Veritas. If only because of the timing, because the timing was going to allow, regardless of whether it was based on. On sound reasoning or not, whether or not O'Keefe had done anything to warrant this action, it was going to be perceived by the the base audience, the hard hardcore, very very pro Trump base, as an indication that Project Veritas had sold out, that they were probably bought off by Pfizer. I mean, that was, I mean, Steve Bannon has already said that on on his media outlet, uh, which is was hardly surprising. But that's the that's the conspiratorial mindset that dominates. The, those on the right wing now, especially those who are Trump lovers. So it's it's not hard at all for the, the Project Veritas supporter to go, wait a minute, uh, you've sold us out. The deep state got to you. Pfizer got to you. And now you're crucifying James O'Keefe, who's our hero. Uh, I don't believe that that's what happened, but I know that that would be the perception of what happened. And the fact that that was going to be the perception you would think would prevent Project Veritas from going down this path, especially as inartfully as they did so. And I'm speaking as someone who's never been a big fan of James O'Keefe, because I think he's an actor. I don't trust actors. I mean, he's admittedly, he's an actor. He's a, a, a song and dance guy. He does song and dance videos. He's performed in Oklahoma, the musical. He. He does Shakespearean readings and posts them on his Twitter page, which is all fine and good, but I, I, I don't really trust that, especially when your whole deal is about you know truth, justice, and the American way. Um, and the speech that, that O'Keefe gave and the video of it was exceedingly odd, even by O'Keefe's standards. And what I found to be odd about it was that he was appearing to speak to his staff that was the perception that he gave. Like he, You just saw him in front of a desk, clearly in Project Veritas offices, and he, he's acting like he's talking to a crowd. Now, you can't tell how large the crowd is, but it seems like there's a crowd there. Yet, there was no crowd reaction when there should be. Although, at one point, there was a small crowd reaction. that sounded like there might have been three or four people in the room. Even if there was only three or four people in the room, it was strange to me that that there were other points in the speech, like at the end, when you would have expected some semblance of crowd reaction, because he gave this very dramatic end where he is basically pronouncing his time at Project Veritas to be over. You would have expected some sort of applause or something from the people that were there in response to this 45 minute very dramatic, at times very emotional speech that he gave. And instead, there was nothing. And I don't think it would have been because the people there didn't approve. Because if you were there, you were obviously an Keith supporter to begin with. My, I kept thinking the whole time I'm watching, is there anybody really in the room? <laughs> is he just faking that he's talking to a crowd here? Is he trying to make it look like there's a large group of Project Veritas supporters where he's Hitler in the bunker here, and you know a, a huge portion of the Project Veritas staff is is on his side, and he's giving them his farewell address. I, I don't know; it just was so strange. And because it's O'Keefe, and because he's such an actor, I'm always very skeptical and suspicious of everything he does. Many of his videos, I believe, have been manipulatively edited to to basically create a, a, a misimpression for what really happened. I don't know whether or not that's what happened at Pfizer, but it, it, with the Pfizer sting, but it's certainly possible. Um, and again, I don't, I don't have any hatred towards him. I'm honestly, I have a lot of respect for what he's been able to accomplish. Uh, and he does have a great talent. It's very difficult to do what he's, what he's done. And especially as someone who has tried it myself. So, that that's not the issue, but I do sense that James is an egomaniac, uh, a megalomaniac almost, a megalomaniac, and that's always dangerous. And I think that that's probably the simplest explanation for what happened here is that, and that's where the Pfizer thing comes in as far as timing, because I, I don't think that the the Project Veritas crowd, the board there, understood their vulnerability, at least not at first with regard to doing anything to James in the midst of this Pfizer sting and how that was going to be perceived. And I think that once the reaction in favor of James was so overwhelming, especially on Twitter and so anti-Project Veritas, I think James probably, this is just my guess, overplayed his hand and felt like he was untouchable and that therefore, you know, any repercussions at all towards him were unacceptable. Again, I don't, it's all very complicated and I don't, we may never know the full story and it's, it's a lot of it's convoluted, but it feels very much to me like ego played a massive role here. And I also think that James O'Keefe has a bit of a crucifixion complex. And this is not unusual. I've seen it in my own life. My grandfather definitely had a, a, on my mother's side, had a crucifixion complex. My mother inherited it. I probably got some of it, although I've been aware of it. So I've been, I've tried to keep it at bay. I don't have it anywhere near as bad as I think James O'Keefe does. I think there's part of James O'Keefe who thought, you know what, if this is where I'm going to go down, this is a great hill to die on. I've just had my greatest success with the the Pfizer sting. My popularity is at an all time high. People are supporting me over Project Veritas. And you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to fall on my sword on this one. And 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 the actor in him may have uh, overtaken rationality, and we're you know in a situation where now both sides are probably going to lose out. Project Veritas is definitely going to lose out if if James O'Keefe is done there, that's for sure. Uh, and I think it might be a little bit more difficult for James O'Keefe going forward than he might currently realize. Although I don't know uh, what he has in his pocket with regard to to potential fundraising or other options. I'm sure he'll have plenty of other options, but re. But duplicating the magic of Project Veritas is going, to be, is going to be very difficult. Seems to me as if both sides have lost here, for sure. Two other stories I want to talk about real quick in our time remaining on this episode of The Death of Journalism. The conservative media has been really oddly obsessed with liberal comedian Chelsea Handler over the last week or so. And I don't know if you know who Chelsea Handler is. She's a longtime comedian. She's pretty well known. She most recently has been uh, guest hosting the Daily Show on Comedy Central. And when she did that, she did a, I thought it was kind of funny, although politically I can understand why conservatives were offended by it. She did a, a bit that went viral about how awesome her life is as a late 40s woman without having kids to worry about. And it was basically mocking the idea that, you know, that she could ever possibly regret her decision not to have kids.
4: Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: And her life is awesome. She sleeps late. She does marijuana whenever she wants to. She has sex whenever she wants to. She can do whatever she wants. She can go wherever she wants. And, you know, her life is awesome. And unlike her friends, she doesn't have to worry about kids. And didn't she make such a great decision? And this sent uh, elements of the conservative media into a complete tizzy. And I think their tizzy has been a little bit um, over the top. I also think it's been misinterpreted, maybe purposely so, by the left-wing media, which, of course, has been defending Chelsea Handler. I think it's a bit over the top because, one, Handler is a comedian. It's supposed to be a joke, all right? (laughs) So we used to have a sense of humor. And in some of what Handler did was kind of funny. I mean, as a, as a father of two young daughters, my wife and I joke all the time about how life would be a lot easier if, if suddenly our kids didn't exist. But would we want that to happen? Obviously not. So, I mean, so it's there's, it, there's a funny element of, yeah, our lives, our lives before we had kids, we joke with our kids all the time about all the places we used to go before we had kids and how much fun we used to have. Uh, and now that's all gone. Uh, but in in the totality, you, you still like to believe that you made the right decision by having the kids and they bring a lot of joy in other areas. And obviously, there's also a lot of hardship. I mean, it's very, very, very difficult. But I think from the handler perspective, what what if what I found to be interesting about what she's doing is it feels very much to me as overcompensating for somebody who deep down is starting to regret her decision, but doesn't want to admit it. So it's kind of the dust out she protest too much syndrome where I'm gonna brag about how awesome my life is, even though it's in a comedy setting because I'm actually starting to realize I'm never going to have kids and now I'm I'm gonna have you know however m- how long I have left to live 30 years or whatever it is uh, with no children. And because that's really the most daunting part of this, isn't it right? I mean, you know when I think about my own situation, In the short run, (laughs) we've made a lot of sacrifices, a lot of sacrifices for our two kids who are unbelievably spoiled. (laughs) But you'd like to believe that down the road that that, that's going to make your life more fulfilling. One, there's some great moments along the way. But I mean, think about what happens if if my wife and I, if we had no kids, first of all, we'd kill each other because we'd get bored as hell. There'd be nothing to talk about. There'd be nothing to do. There'd be nothing to focus on. There'd be nothing going on in the future. But it's really once you get into the your you know your fifties or your sixties and there's no kids and there's no grandkids, that's when it really, I think, hits home. When you're no longer forty seven, I think that's how old Chelsea Handler is, and you know all of a sudden um, you know you're not attractive to the opposite sex anymore, really. And in her career, she's not going to be probably as busy or as famous. I mean, that's it's a young person's game. And so now all of a sudden, everything just kind of stops in your 60s and your 70s, and there's nobody that cares. There's no one that really gives a damn or that you really give a damn about. And I'm not saying that that can't be a fulfilling life. I'm just saying that that's a a big challenge. And so from Handler's perspective, I I sense that she's overcompensating because she, I think she knows at some level that she's in for a rough time in the future maybe not right now, but 10, 20, 30 years from now, uh, not having kids is going to be a decision that's that's difficult and it will have repercussions. The part that the conservative media confuses me the most about, though, is not the criticism of Handler, which again, I think has gotten a little too personal at times. I mean, Jesse Kelly went on Tucker Carlson's Fox News Channel show and just was completely inappropriate and eviscerating uh, Chelsea Handler in a very mean and nasty fashion. It was funny, I guess, but it was I thought it was over the top. Um, but the part that the conservative media, I think, seems to be missing is why are we upset that liberals aren't procreating? That's the part I don't get. I mean, why, why would conservatives want Chelsea Handler to have children? <laughs> because Chelsea Handler's children are going to be more liberals, I can assure you. Uh, and, you know, frankly, with regard to the demographic shifts in this country, the only thing, all seriousness, this is one of those topics that no one ever wants to talk about. The only thing giving conservatives any chance at all to hold on for dear life in the midst of these massive demographic shifts is the fact that liberals have more abortions and less kids than conservatives do. That's it. If if that had not been the case over the last generation, stick a fork at conservatives already. I mean it's already heading in that direction. But but why exactly would conservatives be upset that liberals like Chelsea Handler wouldn't want to reproduce? I, I'm I'm baffled by that part. So I felt like I wanted to put in my two cents on that because I do think I have a pretty unique take on the situation. One last story that I just have to mention. <laughs> because it's one of my pet peeves. And it deals in in the realm of global warming, climate change. And and this is a story from the Atlantic. And it deals with a topic that I've always felt like is one of the smoking guns, and there are many, that this whole story, this whole issue of climate change, global warming is at best way overblown and probably complete bullcrap. Is the idea that if liberals really believed in any of this, they would not be buying up at very, 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 very high prices, coastal property. They would not be living, you know, on the coast of, uh, of the, first of all, the Northeast. Uh, you know, places, you know, outside of New York and outside of Boston and the Cape, the Hamptons, you know, all that kind, all those kind of places. Uh, Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket. I mean, these are all places that you would think would be very, very vulnerable. <laughs> the first place to be vulnerable, if the ice melts in the polar cap, uh, north, uh, you know, the, the North Pole ice caps, uh, that would be the first place, theoretically, that would be very vulnerable to being damaged, if not submerged, by the supposedly rising sea levels. So The Atlantic, the very liberal outlet, which once did a 23-page cover story on me back in the day by David Foster Wallace, but that's another story for another day. They did a story entitled, Every Coastal Home is Now a Stick of Dynamite. Every Coastal Home is Now a Stick of Dynamite. And the tweet promoting this story read, rising sea levels are turning coastal homes across the United States into sticks of dynamite. Passed on to less and less wealthy owners. At some point, they will blow. <laughs> um, there's so many elements of this that are that are ridiculous, but the the essence of the story is that you know we're having global warming. the The sea levels are going to rise, and um, and this is going to cause great danger to uh, these coastal homes. And uh, and this is just a disaster waiting to happen. And to me, I've never seen any logic or evidence to back up this theory. And we've seen, um, you know, we see it all the time. There are pictures of coastal landscapes that from a hundred years ago where you cannot notice a scintilla of difference from today to in the early 1900s pebble beach by the way they just had the pebble beach pro-am golf tournament on the pga tour recently and the pga tour posted a photograph of 2023 versus i think 1920 or something maybe even earlier than that the exact same photo from the exact same perspective and the coastline could not possibly look more similar over 100 years later now does that prove anything no no I would think there would be some damn evidence of this. Heck, just last month there was a story that Japan is estimating that the number of islands off of the mainland of Japan is going to double, double during their most recent census of islands, which they hadn't done since I think 1987. So the and, and the reason for this is what receding receding oceans, or is, are they? Or are the oceans rising? How does that happen? How does China in in you know in basically a generation and a half, when they do their their island census and there's thousands of these little islands off the mainland of, of Japan, how do they all of a sudden find all these new islands? Uh, again, doesn't prove anything, but how does that happen when we're supposedly seeing? sea level rise. And I've never even understood the concept of sea level rise. It's basic science that you know when ice melts, ice is largely air. <laughs> I mean you just can do this experiment yourself. It's not a perfect experiment, but I've done it with my daughter. If you if you you full a cup of water and you put fill ice at the top of it and it looks like it's about to overflow and you let the the ice melt, the water does not overflow the cup because it doesn't create a rise in the so-called sea level of the cup again not a perfect example not there are you know the other elements of that that, that make it an imperfect uh, experiment but that the, the whole concept i don't understand i mean if, if if in fact the the ice caps melt and there's debate over whether that's really happening or not i've never seen how that relates to massive significant sea level rise not to mention that i'm not even convinced that we're going through warming. I mean, heck, again, it's weather. It's not climate. It doesn't prove anything, but the media will ignore it. The the Northwest and specifically here, even in Southern California, we're about to head for the, the coldest week I can ever remember in the 20 years that I've lived here. And this is on top of the coldest winter I've ever experienced in Southern California in the 20 years that I've lived here. And that's without a doubt. And The only media story you've heard, you've heard two media stories about Southern California or California weather this winter. In October, you heard about a two-week heat wave, which was brutal. We always get heat waves in October. And it was brutal, and it was way above normal. And it got a lot of media coverage because it fit with the global warming narrative. And then you heard about all the rain we got in December and January. But you also heard, but it doesn't really end the drought. And oh, by the way, these storms are probably an example of climate change too, because they're getting more and more powerful or some nonsense. I've not heard one story about how cold this winter has been after that heat wave. I can't remember, in all honesty, more than one or two days where we were even above average temperature since the heat wave ended in October. It has been below average almost every single day. Again, that doesn't prove anything. That's weather. But it would generate a lot of news if it was in the other direction. It doesn't generate any news in the direction that doesn't fit the agenda. And what we're heading for in the next week or so is just is going to be darn near, darn near uh, like New York City is going to probably experience. We might be colder than New York City over the, or the over the next week here in California. And my, my point here is one, the news hypocrisy, and two, I just don't. See any evidence of what it is that is supposed to be going to destroy all of us and create uh, homes into dynamite and and uh you know and 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 again, it's not just an academic issue because we are we're fundamentally altering our entire way of life and our economy to try to accommodate this religion that is based on a fraud much like so much of what happened with regard to covid and yet we will never learn our lessons. That's the problem. And the reason why we will never learn our lessons is because the media is not incentivized to teach us the proper lessons and to make sure that the public actually has the facts and the truth to be able to make their own decisions. Plus, let's face it, most of the public is a bunch of morons who are invested in their own realities, but the media only enables that and does not do anything to try to fix that because it's not in their self-interest to do so. That'll do it for episode number 35 of the Death of Journalism podcast. This is always the case. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review this episode, and please share it with others who you might think would find this to be of interest, because obviously the news media is not going to help us spread the word about the podcast. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. My name is John (laughs) Ziegler.
1: The Death of Journalism is a Workhouse Connect, John Ziegler production. Executive producer, Mike Agavino, with our hosts, Liz Abib and John Ziegler. You can find The Death of Journalism wherever you get your podcasts. If you like us, please give us a five-star rating and review. Please join our Twitter community, The Death of Journalism. Thanks for listening.